Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you. I just said to Adam, I don't recognize like 60% of the people in this room since the last time I was here, which, praise God, uh, you know, our church, our congregations are growing and new people are coming. Hopefully you feel welcome and have sensed uh, the, the presence of God and uh, enjoying gospel worship this morning. Uh, we met at Nazareth this morning at 9 o'clock, and then I rolled on down here. We did communion. We did the same sermon there that we're doing here. So we are tracking right with you guys, like Adam said, through this series in Galatians. Um, what, what's your name? Eddie? Hi. And what's, what's your guys' name? Okay, I just feel like I need to know somebody's name that I'm making eye contact with that makes me feel better about life. Um, we've been going through the same series as you guys in, in one gospel, looking at the letter to the Galatians. And, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of ground so far in the gospel that, that we do not earn God's love, that we don't earn salvation, that we cannot add, well, you can try and add works to the gospel, but then it makes it not the gospel. And, and last week, uh, similar to probably you guys, we looked at how Paul starts to bring in the person of Abraham, sort of the spiritual patriarch of our family. And I said in Nazareth this morning that the Apostle Paul is, is sort of like a baseball. I don't know if you've ever cut open a baseball. You take off that outer shell, and inside there's all these different strings that run all together, and it runs all over the place, and then there's this sort of core in the middle. And studying Paul is like that. You take the outer shell off, and you start to get in there, and it's just all over the place. And, and some of the stuff that he brings up regularly, it gets all twisted and turned around in Scripture, and it's hard to understand. But some of the things he goes after regularly are this idea of the law, the gospel, Abraham, and, and, and the people of Israel, and why they were following the law. And he does this in Romans. He does it in Galatians. And, and so we're going to continue looking at that today. And it will be a little probably theologically heavy and um, shy of application, but Here's what I think. I think what we believe about the gospel, what we believe about God, what we believe about the law and the law and its relationship to the gospel really matters. And if we have a misunderstanding about the relationship between the law and the gospel, we end up being people who, who secretly really like the law. We secretly really want to live by it and wish everybody else would live by it. And we become these people, as we get further and further in life, we get more and more uptight and more and more angry that the world around us isn't behaving the right way. Or if we have the wrong relationship to the law, we think, well, it doesn't really matter. I can do whatever I want. Who cares? And we just go bonkers and completely devoid of a Christ-centered, godly, uh, you know, godly behaviors. And, and so we need to have a right relationship to the law, and that's what we're going to get into today. But Paul has taken time up to this point with Abraham to say, listen, you know, you Galatians, why are you trying to add in works? What was started by the Spirit, why are you now trying to finish in the flesh? Why are you trying to finish this thing by, by adding in works? You can't add anything to the promise, which is something we're going to get into today. So the natural question would be, if Paul is talking about the law in these ways, it seems sort of derogatory, why did the law exist? Why did they even have the law? Why for thousands of years were the people of Israel called to rely on this law and to live by it. Well, is God just saying, was God just saying, hey, I'm going to give you this law. You're not going to be able to do it. I'm just going to damn you anyway. Right? Some of us think that. Some people feel that way, that God was this great trickster who's just trying to get them to fall into this trap and, and end up in hell and away from God. Was it just sort of a, you know, this thing that he's like, I don't know, maybe you can do it. Who cares? Just see if you can do it. Just try it. No, eventually we'll get to Jesus. He's the good part. 
Is that why the law existed? And I was remembering uh, when we, my wife and I lived in Jordan for a year, and we had two kids when we went there, Abby and Jimmy, and we would regularly have to make this drive from Aqaba, Jordan, which is on the Red Sea, three hours north to Amman, Jordan, to the capital. This would be like driving from here to D.C. or something, except instead of driving to D.C. on nice highways and everything, this was like a really crappy road in the middle of really hot baking sun, so hot that my wife would need to hang a, a sheet over the window to keep the sun from baking in on her. And because we were going north, the sun was on this side, and we went south on the way home, it'd be on that side. So she kind of baked like in both directions. The air conditioning didn't work well in the van. It was a miserable experience. So we should pray for our international workers who are serving in the Middle East like we did earlier. It's a tough place to live. But anyway, we'd make this drive, and it would take like three hours, and the kids would get ornery, and everybody was restless in a bad mood. And eventually, we'd, we'd find ourselves saying the same thing every time. Look for camels. Just, just look for camels. Just look out the window and find something to do. If you've got little kids, you understand what I'm talking about. Like, they didn't understand. We didn't have smart devices at this point. There was nothing we could stick in front of them to keep them preoccupied. It was like, look for camels. This was as good as it got. This was the, this was the smart device that we had for them. And so we were just trying to preoccupy their time, to get them to focus on something until we got to our destination. And I wondered, is that why the law existed? Just look at this thing for a little while, do this thing for a couple hundred years, and then, then maybe we'll get to the good part. I think that we have misread the law for years as Christians, that we've written off the law We've looked past it just to get to Jesus. And the Jewish people, by and large, looked to the law for salvation. They looked to it incorrectly as well. But what I want to drive at today, and hopefully you get a picture of, is, is this idea that the law was never the point. The law was never the point. The promises were. The promises of God to Abraham were the point, but the law was the guardian that would protect the people and walk the people of Israel forward and point to the value of grace that was found in Jesus, in the gospel. And so I think we need to have a right relationship to the law and a right relationship to the gospel to become people who actually live in grace, who believe it for ourselves and who believe it for the world around us. What I want to do is uh, we're going to read in Galatians 3. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to it. Paul is continuing the conversation that he started last week in talking to Abraham, or talking about Abraham, and saying that he, you know, he lived by faith, he believed, and therefore he received from God, as opposed to us who sometimes want to believe and achieve God's love and God's promises. So he's continuing on, he starts really laying out in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, this, this idea of who Abraham is and, and who this, the spiritual children are of God in Abraham. But look what he says starting in verse 15 of chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is the Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, all right, so Abraham is given the promises. 430 years later, the people under the leadership of Moses receive the law. They receive the Ten Commandments. They receive the, the Levitical law of moral and 
uh, ritual cleansing and laws and things like this. So he says, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? Why did it exist? It was added because of transgressions, because of sin, because of brokenness, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. And we'll talk about that in a second. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, or I don't know if you guys talked about this, and knowing Adam, you did, uh, before the coming of the faithfulness of Jesus, it's another way that word faith can be interpreted in the Greek is to say it's actually the faithfulness of Jesus that is justified. Before the coming of this faith or this faithfulness, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures in front of you, I encourage you to read it this week and just kind of peruse that and meditate on it a little bit so you can get it a little bit more fully for yourselves. But I want to look at a couple different things here. The covenant promise, again, sort of starting with Abraham and what was promised to him. And then I want to look at the law as guardian. All right, The law is the guardian that's supposed to walk the people forward to Jesus. And so in, in the first verse of this, Paul is, is laying out, again, he's reiterating that, that this was a promise that came to Abraham. It was this promise that came to Abraham in Genesis 12. God makes this covenant with Abraham and says, everything that went, he doesn't say it in these words, okay, but this is what's happening. Everything that went wrong in the garden, I'm restarting with you, Abraham. I'm making a new family with you and, uh, you and Sarah that's going to fill the earth. And you're going to be a people and I'm going to be your God. My presence is going to be with you. I'm going to give you a land that you can live in. I'm going to give you a purpose to be a light to the Gentiles, to spread the glory of God around the earth. This is what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. But God is offering this promise to Abraham, saying, I'm going to do this through your seed, through your offspring, through your family. And if you remember, when God makes this covenant with Abraham, remember back in those days, the covenant they would make, would they would take animals and they would sacrifice them and split them in half and lay them on two sides indicating the severity of the covenant they were making, they would walk through it, sort of committing through life and death, I am committed to the other side of this covenant. And God makes this covenant with Abraham, but if you remember, where was Abraham when God makes this covenant? He was asleep, right? Abraham's in this deep sleep, and God alone walks through these sacrificed animals. Kind of a precursor to Jesus walking through death alone to fulfill the covenant. And so God makes this covenant promise to Abraham, and, and Paul's saying it's duly established. You can't add anything to it. You can't take anything away from it. The promise is true because God is true. God made this commitment to Abraham, and he will see it through. But how will he see it through? Go to verse 16. He will see it through to his seed. He will see it through to the one who would come is Jesus, the Christ. This is where all of the promises rest. All of the promises are yes in Jesus, Paul says. 
they come true and are in Jesus, in our union with him, we inherit these promises. And he's saying, God has made this commitment. It has come through in Jesus. Why are you trying to add anything to it? By trying to add things to it, you're saying it wasn't a good promise and that maybe it didn't come true. Paul's saying God can be trusted. He gave us his promise. It will come to fruition. My mom uh, worked full-time when I was growing up, and my dad was a truck driver, so he was over the road for five, six days a week. And so my brother and I would be at home alone for the majority of the afternoon. And, and oftentimes what this meant was my mom would call home and she'd say, okay, put the oven to 350, take out that Stouffer's, blah, 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 put it in the oven, and it'll be ready by the time I get home and we'll have dinner together. We had TV dinners, maybe you remember those, okay, for the, for the older folks in the crowd. We would heat those up in the microwave, and like, this was our dinner. We'd get this thing prepped and ready for when mom came home, and we would eat together. But every once in a while, my mom would call home and say, I'm bringing home dinner. I'm bringing something home, which might have meant like McDonald's. I don't know. Like, again, I didn't eat very healthy. Like, I can't believe I don't weigh 400 pounds at this point in my life. Like, I did not eat healthy growing up. God bless my mother. Uh, she's fantastic. But she would say, I'm going to bring home food. Don't eat anything else. I'm going to provide for you. It's a bit of a promise, right? Saying, I'm, I promise you, I'm bringing this home. Dedicate yourself to, to wait for that meal. Don't eat these other things. But she makes this promise. It had nothing to do with me and my brother earning it. She's saying she's going to do it. So we could have behaved like however we wanted at that point. She's already said she's bringing it home. We didn't have to make anything. All she asked was that we would not eat other things. Right, that we would wait for the promise of the food to come to fruition, a promise that she had made to bring dinner home. And I think that's a little bit of what's, what Paul's driving at behind this idea of reiterating again, God made this promise. You can trust him to do it. It's not dependent on your behavior. He comes and he does it through Jesus. And what we'll see is that the law is also a way of saying Stay true to God. Don't fill yourselves up with these other idols, these other things. Stay true to God. He has promised you these things. But all that to say, in this first section, Paul is just pointing out the faithfulness of God, that God will make good on his promise. All those years earlier to Abraham, he will bring it to fruition in Jesus. And all Abraham needed to believe, do was believe to receive it, and all we need to do is believe to receive what CJ talked about, the Spirit, the fullness of God that comes in Jesus, in the Spirit to us. So let's look at the law then. Paul says that the, the, the law came as a guardian, right? So it's promises of God to Abraham. Why the law? The law comes as a guardian. I want to say this. I said it earlier. I'll say it again. The law was not a trap. Okay, please hear me. The law was not a trap. God did not set it up just so he could then be mad at humanity. All right? You need to hear that and you need to believe that because I think even as Christians, we still think that. God's going to be mad at me if I don't do the law. I better fulfill it. Not the case. God did not set up the law just to trap us and be angry with us. Nor was the law, nor was the promise contingent on the law. All right, this is the argument he started making last week when we were studying, and he makes it again here fully. The law, by obeying it, could not bring about the promise. The promise was the point. The law came second. All right, the promise was not contingent on perfectly following the law. He says, 
If it was and somebody could be righteous, then we wouldn't have needed the promise. Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. And here's the other thing. If it was contingent on perfect obedience to the law, might we all be in trouble? Because Jesus broke the law on a couple occasions, right? The Pharisees get angry with him because he's not following it perfectly the way that they think he should be. He didn't follow it to the letter of the law, quote-unquote. So now we're in trouble if we're saying that the promise is contingent on perfect obedience to the law. But lest you hear me saying Jesus didn't fulfill the law, he fulfilled the law and he becomes the ritual sacrifice, the atonement. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So why then the law? Well, verse 19 says this, that, that, that God added the law because of transgressions, because of sin that exists in humanity, because of our penchant to want to go and worship other things, to fill our bellies with other things than the promise of God was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. See, the law is added as a bit of a standard, as a teacher, as a model. This teacher that says, this is how I can guide you. This is what it looks like to be a person devoted with full affection towards the Father. But it's not just a teacher, it's also a critic. It's a critic that stings when we actually allow it to evaluate our lives, when we allow the law to permeate into our hearts and our minds and think, how do I actually measure up against this? Not well. When, when I was uh, at Nyack College, which is the, the flagship college for uh, our denomination, I took uh, an elective. I took an art class one semester, and I like to think of myself as creative, but I am in no way artistic. Like, I, I don't know why I took this. I should have just taken bowling or something, like something that I actually had experience in. I took art I don't, maybe it's because my girlfriend was in it. I don't know. But I take this art class, and I do not have an artistic bone in my body. Like, I, I know what colors match, and I can see what goes, but I can't paint. I can't draw. I can't sketch. When you get into trying to make stuff, I don't even know, two-dimensional, three-dimensional, when you try to add depth to something, I got nothing. Like, I am terrible at this. I don't know why I took it. But here's what would happen. The professor would, would tell us about theory. You know, this is what you do with shading. This is how you do lines. This is what this looks like. And then he would put an example up and say, now copy this. One of the people we would copy regularly was Edward Hopper. He's a, a painter. And he would paint scenes from the Nyack area, which is why he was used of sailboats on the Hudson River and things. But he put this standard up. And the teacher would instruct us about what it would look like to paint. And he would put something up there and say, this is what your final product should look like. And mine never did. <laughs> never. Never. I mean, I should show you some of the sketches I have left. They're terrible. Terrible. They look more like, I don't know, Picasso. I don't know. Just... Terrible, all jacked up. Anyway, I took this thing thinking I might be able to achieve something, but I couldn't. So the, the, in the same way that the, this artistic piece is supposed to be the model, is supposed to be the standard that we were aspiring to, it's the same thing with the law. The law was given because we are a broken, sinful people who have affections for other things. And God says, look, this is what it looks like to be someone who has affection for me. If you look at the law that God gives Moses in the Ten Commandments, the first set of laws are all about having affection for God, of setting him apart as holy, of setting days apart to be with him, of worshiping him and no, no one else, of, of using his name in right ways and honoring him the way that he deserves. God's saying this is the standard. This is what it looks like to be a person given to God, to be a person given to affection towards the Father and no one else, filling your lives with worship of him, not these other idols, which is the problem going all the way back to the garden, is it not? Of worshiping other things, like ourselves, rather than God. 
And so the law is supposed to be this, this, this piece that we look at and say, okay, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to honor God. But again, the law in itself wasn't the point. This is why when you get into the, the major prophets, you see them saying over and over again, God saying, I don't care about the blood of bulls and goats. Your hearts are far from me. So you could follow this thing all the way out, every letter of the law, and yet still not actually have an affection for God. He's saying, this is the problem. This is the problem, is that your hearts are far from me. So it was never about perfect obedience to the law. It was about being close to God, about having an affection for God and worshiping him only. This is why there's grace even in the law for sin to occur. Do you remember this? This is why the ritual laws existed. This is why the atonement for sac the sacrifice for atonement existed, where they would take the blood of an innocent lamb and put it on the altar, and the people would trust in this to be their atonement and be given forgiveness so they could still be close to God. They would take the sins and figuratively place them on the scapegoat and send it outside of the town so it would carry away their sins, and they would believe that they were in right relationship with God because God was forgiving them. You see, there's grace even in the law. God knows they're going to sin. It was never about perfect obedience. It was about an affection for the Father because of his affection for us. So there's this standard that we look to and say, this is what it looks like to be a person given to God. To aspire to be that kind of person and to be reminded of what that kind of person looks like. But just as much as it was a teacher, Paul says it was also a critic that stung. The law hurts when we look at it and see the disparity between us and the standard. When I looked at that piece of artwork, I would say, I see what needs to happen. I can't make it happen here on my page. Or I see what's happening here on my page, and it is not what is happening up there on that piece of art up there. This is terrible. Doesn't this sound like Romans 7? Paul saying, I know what I should do based on the law, but I can't do it. And what I don't want to do, I end up doing that all the time. He's saying, I know what the law is, I know what the standard is, and I stink at it. I didn't even know what coveting was until I read the law. But now that I know what it is, I covet all the time. Wretched man that I am, who will save me? Like, he is completely lost. And he realizes this, that he looks to the law, and it's a critic that stings him. And says, you can't do this. <coughs> I think this is why by the time he gets towards the end of that chapter, he says, we were locked up under the law. It's like a guard that stood outside of a prison and said, you're not getting out. You are stuck in your brokenness, stuck in your sin. You do not have a natural affection in you towards the Father. This is the idolatry that is in all of our hearts. This is what theologians call original sin. We just want to worship ourselves. We want autonomy. We do not want affection for God. And the law points it out over and over and over again. So how was it a guardian then? It's modeling for us what affection for the Father looks like. It's pointing out again and again that, that we can't do it, and it's walking us all the way up to Jesus. This is where Romans 7 turns the corner to Romans 8 and says, who will save me? I can't do this. You know who will save me? Jesus. Jesus is the one who has affection for the Father and is fully devoted to him. Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of the law of loving God and loving others. He is the one who can do everything that we cannot do. 
the law guarded us until we got to him. And I think part of the, 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 the law that, that God wants us to understand so much is it points out how much we need grace, how much we need mercy to not be punished for what we deserve of walking away from God again and again and yet be given grace to say, still, come into my family, despite the fact that you cannot do this on your own. You see, this is the beauty, this is the exchange that happens, that, that Jesus fulfills the ritual law by being perfect and then is put forth as the atonement, as the sacrifice for sins in the same way that the people under the law would trust in the blood of bulls and goats and put their sin on a scapegoat and send it outside of the camp, in the same way that the people trusted in the blood of the Passover lamb, we are now called to trust in the atonement of Jesus and say, you're right, I can't save myself, but Jesus, the perfect lamb, can. There is salvation that comes through him, and the law for hundreds of years was pointing out the deficiency in our own humanity to worship God our own deficiency to get rid of sin, to get rid of brokenness, to have an affection for God. And he says, Jesus has done it. He is the perfect one who has fulfilled the meaning of the law. And what the law was powerless to do, Paul says, God condemned in the flesh this sin that was so prevalent in humanity. But here's what's incredible. And I know that Adam preaches this every week and we close our services in the same way. That Jesus not only makes atonement for sin, not only takes the condemnation that we deserved, meaning we get the A plus on the art project now because of his grade, all right? Not only do we get his grade, through the spirit in the resurrection, he now gives us the mind and the heart of the artist, that we now have been freed from our inability to do this on our own. My crappy artistic ability, right? I can't do this on my own. But if I'm given the mind and the talent and the skill of the artist himself inside of me, now I can live into this. And see, this is what Jesus does through the Spirit. He says, yeah, you could never fulfill the law. You would never pick affection for God. But now I'm going to put my spirit inside of you. And you've been set free from slavery to sin, slavery to death, slavery to work, slavery to the law. But now you have affection for God. The spirit inside of you groaning for the Father. The spirit inside praying for you. This is the beauty of Romans 8, that we don't get stuck in Romans 7 in our disparity. We get moved into Romans 8 because the spirit is in those who call him Lord. See, Jesus is the one who's affectionate towards the Father. Jesus is the one who never worshipped idols. Jesus is the one who consistently loved God and then loved others. And that spirit is then put inside of us so that, yeah, we are no longer under a critical law to guard us. We've been set free to then be able to choose into living out the law of loving God and loving others. Jesus is the righteous one. He is the atonement. He is the one that is affectionate towards God. All the things that we could not do for ourselves. I think this is why we need to have a proper relationship to the law. Because if we think the law was the point, even though we now have Jesus, we will then try to add the law back in. God's only going to be happy with me if I obey the law. This is why he would have been happy with the Jews if they could have just gotten it right. It was always about the promise. It is still about the promise of God given through Jesus and his spirit in us. 
This is why we now can choose into the law and say, I'm not saved by this, but I can see that affection for God is life-giving. Love for others is the full life, and now we can choose into that because of the Spirit of God at work in all of those who believe. And it's our firm belief here at Hope that when you believe that, when you believe in the grace of God towards you, it changes your identity. You realize you're a son or a daughter of God, and you have nothing to prove, nothing to earn anymore. And you bask in the glory of God's grace. But you also start to have grace for the people around you as well. And rather than getting older and more stingy and more uptight, we can become people who age with grace, age with love, and are transformed again and again, renewing our minds every day in the grace of the gospel so that we can become lovers of God and lovers of the people around us. Friends, the law was never the purpose. It was never the point. The promise of God is the point, and we see that lived out in Jesus, and now we have the inheritance when we are in union with him of everything that was promised to Abraham. We're going to celebrate communion now. Uh, CG, I think you're going to come up and play play for us while we're taking communion. There are two stations up here to the left and the right. Here's what I want you to think about. Well, in case you need instructions on this, if you haven't done it this way before, there's some bread, some juice. You're going to rip a piece off, dip it in the juice, take it as you feel ready. If it's not dripping all over your hands, you can wait, ponder, meditate. But here's what I want you to think about. In the book of John, just before... Jesus is going to the Last Supper before he goes and washes the disciples' feet. He says something very interesting that I think has a a connection back to this passage in Galatians 3 and all the way back to, really, to Abraham and the covenant that God makes with him. Jesus says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Do you hear it? The promises are in the single seed of Jesus, who upon his death makes atonement for sin so that we can be brought into the family of God. And the spirit that raised him from the dead now is alive in all of us and gives us the fruit of the spirit. The one seed has become many. The promises have been distributed to his people by the spirit Jesus is telling the disciples that when I go and die, this is what's happening. This will be spread to the believers of God through the Spirit. Paul tells the Corinthians about what the the communion meal should look like. And I just want to remind us of this as we go and take the bread and take the juice. He says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And maybe while you're taking the bread, you can remember that Jesus becomes, our sins are placed on his body on the cross, and he is condemned in our place, the the scapegoat that carries the sins outside of the camp. 
He says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. He tells the disciples, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is the blood that's poured over the altar so that we can then come and be in the presence of God. And God, by his spirit, puts his presence in us. So as you go and take Communion, you can remember the the body of Jesus carrying our sins, the blood of Jesus poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. The promises all given to the seed of Abraham, then distributed to his church by the Spirit. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray over us, and then we're going to share in communion together.